Why does the United States seem to ignore the basic tenets of strategy in our military interventions? That is the subject of this interlude in the ancient art of modern warfare. Welcome back. I'm Chris Mayer. In the previous podcast, I said that the next one would be a discussion with some international experts on what we can do to manage the risk of quasi-mercenary organizations. This will still happen, but it's taking longer than I anticipated to be able to get them all together on the same date, especially near the end of summer. Right now, we're scheduled to record on August 25th. So, to keep this series going, I'm posting this podcast as an interlude. The big event regarding national security recently is the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. This was followed by sending 5,000 troops back to Afghanistan and belatedly thinking about the security of U.S. contractors who remain in theater to support the Afghan security forces. This all leads to considerations about what our leaving Afghanistan means for regional and international security. I'll address that second point first. There are some who say that abandoning the Kabul government to its fate regarding the Taliban gives a green light to China regarding Taiwan and Russia regarding Ukraine. I think the message is more nuanced than that. As I mentioned in a previous podcast on China, I don't believe that this makes an invasion of the Republic of China on Taiwan inevitable. First, it would be unwise for any potential enemy to believe that recent actions of the U.S. government are a solid indicator of what we may or may not do in a future context. U.S. history in the 20th century is replete with unexpected responses by the U.S. government to various provocations. Sometimes, significant events produced limited responses. The sinking of the Lusitania in 1915, the capture of the Pueblo in 1968, and the bombing of the Marine Corps barracks in Lebanon in 1983 are just a few examples. It's worth mentioning that the Soviet Union expected the U.S. to intervene in Czechoslovakia in 1968, and were surprised when we didn't. On the other hand, seemingly minor provocations may elicit significant military response. Examples include the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964 leading to our direct involvement in Vietnam, the invasion of Grenada in 1983, and the invasion of Panama in 1990. More rarely, the response has been measured, predictable, and appropriate. In fact, when I was an ROTC cadet, my military instructor on dynamics of military power said that one of the U.S. strategic strengths was that, in his words, you never know which way the ball will bounce. Regardless of U.S. response, which can never be predicted, there are reasons why China and Russia will refrain from attacking their neighbors. As mentioned before, the government at Taipei has been preparing for that invasion for more than 70 years. They are not ill-prepared. The People's Republic of China, on the other hand, has not yet demonstrated the capacity for a long-range amphibious invasion, even without considering U.S. interdiction. Also, the PRC will need to capture the infrastructure of the island intact, as Beijing's economy depends on what Taipei produces. That's not to say that other coercive measures may not increase. Regarding Russia and Ukraine, there is no doubt that Russia could conduct a successful land invasion of Ukraine. What happens after that is the big question. First, like Taiwan, Russia needs to take certain facilities in Ukraine intact. In particular, this includes the armaments production facilities in and around Kharkov. 
Before 2014, this region was a major source of critical components of Russia's military capability, including tanks, ICBMs, and computer components. Although trade is currently frozen, at least officially, that doesn't mean that Russia can afford the destruction of that capacity in an invasion of Ukraine. Even if they could take the Kharkov region intact, using methods similar to the invasion of Crimea in 2014, Moscow is well aware that victory may be ephemeral. After the end of fighting in Europe at the end of World War II, Russia fought a major counterinsurgency operation in Ukraine that lasted more than a decade and cost the lives of tens of thousands of Soviet soldiers and paramilitary forces. The government of Ukraine states that it's ready to implement partisan warfare again. And more recent Russian counterinsurgency operations in Chechnya and Afghanistan were not models of success. Moscow would have to seriously consider the overall costs of any victory in Ukraine. So, despite our abandoning Afghanistan, an invasion of Taiwan or Ukraine is not logically inevitable. Unfortunately, as the second part of this podcast will address, logic is not always the deciding factor in whether to go to war. And Ukraine may not be Russia's only target. Recently, thousands of refugees from Belarus are entering the Baltic states and Poland. This could be a form of hybrid warfare against Russia's near-abroad rivals. But the bigger question, in my mind, is what the pattern of U.S. intervention and withdrawal portends in the geostrategic realm. As I've said before, Clausewitz stated that no one begins a war, or at least no one in their senses, without knowing what the war is about. Without that knowledge, generals can't complete a realistic war plan for approval by the political leadership. This, and other Clausewitzian and just war ideas, formed the basis for the Powell-Weinberger doctrine on the use of military force. Successes in conflicts ranging from Panama and Grenada to Operation Desert Storm confirmed the validity of that doctrine. Other recent military interventions did not. And then Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld famously said that he did not believe that any of the principles of the Powell-Weinberger doctrine were necessary. His notion was tested in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Somalia, and less publicly, in Yemen. So why do various U.S. administrations believe that military intervention is necessary, or even a good idea, without a well-articulated objective or the overwhelming force necessary to conclude a victory, not to mention the other tenets of the Weinberger-Powell doctrine or just war theory? Listeners to these podcasts know that, in addition to military philosophers such as Clausewitz and Sun Tzu, I also bring in classical philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, and Aquinas, and that I find some modern philosophers, such as Hegel and his notion of perpetual peace, to be in error. Now, that doesn't mean that I think modern or postmodern philosophers have nothing useful to say about the ancient art of modern warfare. Kant and Nietzsche have some critical insights to understanding war in the modern context. To our point today, Carl Jung may have a particular insight into the question I just posed. First, let's consider Clausewitz's best-known dictum, War is a continuation of policy with the addition of other means. For my thoughts here today, I'll assume that U.S. political leaders understand that, whether consciously or unconsciously. But what is that policy? What was the policy for going into Vietnam, Iraq, or Afghanistan? When I was responsible for writing the quarterly report to Congress, Measuring Security and Stability in Iraq, this question vexed me. On several occasions, I heard President Bush say, 
our strategy in Iraq is clear. But I couldn't find a clearly stated strategy anywhere. I challenged my staff to find it, but prior to the end of 2005, no such strategy was ever clearly articulated. Regarding Afghanistan, that same president said we were not there for nation building. And then we started nation building. So what is or was the policy that drove such wars? What motivated the intervention? In theory, this motivation should be based on reason. This is the part that the civilian government plays in Clausewitz's Trinity. The government acts rationally, motivated by policy interests, while the military then manages the risks of executing that policy, reason and chance. The whole rational actor model of international security policy depends on this idea. But many conflicts seem to show that the rational actor model is more the exception rather than the rule, and the interventions of the United States are no different. Many of our interventions seem to lack that interplay of reason and risk management. In Jung's view, this almost represents a neurosis, and when looking at motivation in this context, he said that rather than focusing on the logical past, we must look at the present, where the decision-makers were at the moment the decision was made. Unfortunately, according to Clausewitz, motivation based in the moment is passion, and this is the domain of the people. The passion of the people is to be moderated by rational policy determined by the government and then executed by the military. In allowing passion to override reason, we lose the rational leg of Clausewitz's grand trinity. Our executive branch acts because it can, and Congress acts as though fear of the passion of the people keeps it from performing its role as the rational control of military action. The War Powers Act, even if it was ever invoked, will not help. It merely forces an automatic action rather than forcing Congress to fulfill its responsibilities. A tripod with a missing or defective leg will fail. There is another seemingly apocryphal statement of Jung's that says, if you cannot understand why someone did something, look at the consequences and infer the motivation. I hope this idea is truly apocryphal and does not represent a valid method to determine the true motivation of the political leaders of our nation. But what do you think? Why does the United States get into wars without defined objectives, end state, or an exit strategy, particularly in light of the success of the Weinberger-Powell criteria and failure when those criteria are ignored? Let me know. Your responses could be the basis of a future episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Next episode, I promise I will discuss options for managing the risk of quasi-mercenary organizations, and I'll do my best to influence the discussion to consider strategic and just war criteria. It should be interesting.